My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nine Days in July is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios in association with High Five Content. It's January 27th, 1967, two and a half years before the launch of Apollo 11. Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chaffee, the crew of Apollo 1, sit high atop their Saturn V rocket, sealed tight inside their command module. This is a dress rehearsal for their launch three weeks from now. The mood inside the capsule matches the weather outside, gray, their comms with the outside world are spotty and garbled. They've already been in the capsule for hours and very likely have many more to go. Their countdown clock is frozen while repair teams work the radio issue. As they wait for the training simulation to resume, something catches one of the astronauts' eyes. He glances down and suddenly recoils in terror. Frayed electrical wire has sparked, igniting the combustible nylon material of the seats in which the astronauts are strapped tight. Within seconds, the fire has surged up the walls of the capsule. Flames begin to lick the television camera, recording the interior of the command module. The atmosphere inside the command module is pure oxygen. While oxygen itself is not flammable, high concentrations of it make the things it permeates ignite at far lower temperatures than they otherwise would. They also burn hotter and faster. Technicians fight to get the hatch open. Just 17 seconds after the astronauts first report the fire, the building pressure inside the vessel ruptures the command module's bulkheads. One thing is hauntingly clear to everyone. The astronauts inside the command module have fallen silent. Their 
there are times when achieving greatness requires the highest possible sacrifice. Apollo 1's Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chaffee were the first American astronauts to perish in the line of duty. They paid the ultimate price. But it was not in vain. During my flight training in the Navy, we were constantly told that our manuals and training procedures were written in blood. Some of those who came before us paid for the lessons we were learning with their lives, ensuring none of us would be lost in that way ever again. The same was true after the Apollo 1 fire. Everything changed after that. The success of NASA and Apollo 11 would be on the backs of every man and woman who sacrificed to push the boundaries of human exploration. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the sacrifices made not only by Neil, Michael, and Buzz, but also by everyone who supported them professionally and personally. It's July 19th, 1969, day four of the Apollo 11 mission, the day we reach the moon. Cliff Charlesworth and the green team of flight controllers has just relieved Glenn Lenny's black team. Capcom now is Bruce McCandless. Apollo 11 is 12,486 nautical miles from the moon, approaching at a velocity of 4,087 feet per second. Apollo 11, Apollo 11. This is Houston, over. Morning again, Houston. Apollo 11. Roger, 11. Good morning. When you feel like copying, I've got uh, a flight plan update. Remember when I told you in the first episode that we were going to be following the events inside Apollo 11 in real time, day by day, hour by hour, and minute by minute? Well, that's not exactly true. At 73 hours, 00 minutes, uh, stop PTC uh, at approximately 0 degrees roll. That is, uh, when you're coming up on 0 degrees roll angle, Around 73 hours, we'd like you to stop PTC. What you're hearing right now? That's most of what this podcast would sound like if we really did it minute by minute. Often, nothing much happens. Until it does. Houston, you read Apollo 11? The uh, sun uh, right behind uh, the edge of the moon now. Quite an eerie sight. Uh, the uh, very marked uh, three-dimensional uh, aspect of uh, having the sun coming from behind the moon layers. The sky is lit all the way around the moon, even on the limb of it, where there's uh, no earth shine or uh, sunshine. Apollo 11 is being treated to their own personal solar eclipse. This isn't an eclipse that's visible from Earth, but rather one the astronauts inadvertently created for themselves. They are now close enough to the moon that it appears larger than the sun, and they have fallen into its shadow. You heard Buzz mention the sun's corona? That's a diaphanous aura of plasma that surrounds all stars, extending out for millions of miles. It's invisible except during an eclipse. Right now, the astronauts are watching ribbons of light shimmer and dance around a massive black hole that is the moon in complete silhouette. Houston, it's been a real change for us. Uh, Now we're able to see stars again and recognize constellations for the first time. Uh, All the way uh, here, we've only been able to see stars occasionally. I guess it's uh, turned into night up there, really, hasn't it? We imagined deep space would be awash with stars. But with the Earth reflecting sunlight like a massive mirror, it has made that nearly impossible. Except now, with the sun's light trapped behind the moon. In Mission Control, everyone is living vicariously through the crew's awe. See, the moon that uh, we've been having recently is really spectacular. It 
As Apollo 11 continues to enjoy the show, Houston kicks off their day with the news. McCandless decides to tag team it with backup lunar module pilot Fred Hayes. It looks like it's going to be impossible to get away from the fact that uh, you guys are dominating all the news back here on Earth. Even uh, Pravda and Russia is headlining the mission and calls Neil the czar of the ship. Pravda was the official newspaper of the Soviet Union. It still exists today, though it's no longer a mouthpiece of the state. Czar, of course, was the honorific title given to the leader of Russia before the revolution in 1917. West Germany has declared Monday to be Apollo Day. School children in Bavaria have been given the day off. Post office clerks have been encouraged to bring radios to work, and Frankfurt is installing TV sets in public places. Uh, BBC in London is uh, considering a special radio alarm system to call people to their TV sets in case there's a change in the EVA time on the moon. Clearly, Apollo 11 has captured the imagination of the entire world. This will be the most significant where were you when moment in all of human history, and everyone wants to bear witness. Even the kids at camp got in the news when uh, Mike Jr. was quoted as replying, yeah, when somebody asked him if his daddy was going to be in history. Then after a short pause, he asked, what is history? You might be interested in knowing that a Houston astrologer, Ruby Graham, says that all the signs are right for your trip to the moon. She says that Neil is clever, Mike has good judgment, and Buzz can work out intricate problems. Thank you much, sir. Uh, we appreciate that. Roger. You tell Michael Jr. history or no history, he better behave himself. Roger, we'll pass that along, Mike. Apollo 11 is nearly to the moon, but we have just long enough to talk about what life was like back on Earth for Neil, Buzz, and Michael and their long-suffering families. The space families, especially the astronauts, were living sort of double lives. They were their home lives in Houston, and then the guys were flying their hot T-38 down to Cape Canaveral, where they were training. And so they were... Um, absentee fathers for the most part, and sort of uh, celebrities down in Florida. And so the women had to deal with this very unique challenge of keeping a family grounded while also sort of promoting this space age dream that America was projecting out into the world. That was Lily Coppell. I'm a writer and journalist, and I wrote a book called The Astronaut Wives Club. While the astronauts lived in Houston, a large amount of their training took place in Florida, forcing them away from their families for most of the week. In a very real sense, the astronauts' wives were single mothers. Barbara Cernan, who was the wife of Gene Cernan, the last man to walk on the moon, said quite poignantly, if you think going to the moon is hard, try staying at home. They ran the house, juggling the finances, mowing the lawn, fixing anything that broke, and helping the kids with their schoolwork. Andy Aldrin, Buzz and Joan's youngest of three, was 11 the year his father left for the moon. He wasn't at home all that often. That's just what my dad's job was. My mother was incredibly strong, incredibly diplomatic, incredibly compassionate. I, you know, I'll be honest with you, she emerges out of this whole thing as my biggest hero because it was incredibly difficult for her to manage all the things that she had to manage without alarming the kids. You know, the fact that I can say all of this seemed normal 
is an absolute tribute to my mother. The wives soon realized that they were each other's greatest source of strength and support. Togethersville was a name the journalists gave the community. The women were sort of living in this little tribal pack down in Houston, helping communally raise the kids back in Houston because the men were so busy training for their space flight. The wives had a little motto for their own role, and that was happy, proud, and thrilled because they never felt that they could reveal the enormous anxiety, the fears of what they were experiencing. This sisterhood of joint experiences, common pressures, mutual fears, and shared sacrifices was, by their own admission, a bit like living in a neighborhood run by the Stepford Wives. The home they've always dreamed of, the happiest investment they have ever made. There were five houses that were adjacent to the back of our house. Three of them were astronauts. You couldn't swing a dead cat at our elementary school without hitting an astronaut's kid. So it was normal. I thought my dad was cool because he could pole vault, not because he was an astronaut. Having astronauts around was just normal for me. It was normal for everybody in our community. None of the astronaut wives knew what they were in for when they got married. They expected the quiet, ordered life of military spouses. But now they had to attend ribbon cuttings and high society festivities. They had to plaster smiles on their faces during ticker tape parades and make small talk with first ladies. Their neighborhoods were invaded by press and tour buses. And it wasn't unusual to find tourists climbing trees or even jumping backyard fences just to get a look at them. The Astro families had to be flawless. They had to project an image of the all-American Christian family because the world was watching. The women of this family seem to feel that they owe it to the men of the family to look relaxed, rested, and attractive at dinner time. And this was the height of the Cold War, and there was the feeling that America had to really sell and project to the world all the ideals of the country, of the American dream. The choice lies between two opposing ideologies. On the one side, socialist communism, on the other side, democratic capitalism. The astronauts and their families were on the forefront of this propaganda mission. They were almost like America's first reality stars. You know, there was such pressure um, from NASA, from the U.S. government, to maintain this perfect 1950s, going into the 60s image, sort of the Leave it to Beaver family. It was bad enough that the families had to meet NASA's impossible standards anytime they stepped out the front door. But thanks to an exclusive deal with Life magazine, they also had to maintain this illusion behind the closed doors of their own homes. Life reporters were literally embedded with the families before and during missions. Everything they did, said, or wore was scrutinized. It was totally awesome. The Life guys were just great guys, and they just wanted to be my buddies. I enjoyed it. I think it terrified my mom. While the stories about the astronauts that appeared in Life magazine were accurate, the pictures were anything but. They frequently showed Neil, Buzz, and Michael hanging out, laughing and cooking together. But these men didn't do any of that. Not in real life. It was all made up, staged by the magazine to sell copy. Andrew Chaikin is a space historian and science journalist and the author of A Man to the Moon, The Voyages of the Apollo Astronauts, the basis of the HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. The thing about a space mission is that you don't have to be best friends to carry it out successfully. What you do have to do is be consummate professionals. And Neil, Buzz, and Mike were 
above all, consummate professionals. They were superb astronauts. They completely respected each other on a professional level, whether or not they connected on a personal level at all. And I think Mike Collins said it best when he used the phrase amiable strangers. Uh, there was certainly no bad blood between them, but they weren't what you would call best buddies. They weren't the kind of guys who would all go out drinking together. But as a professional unit, they were superb and their skills complemented each other. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. He came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Houston, uh, you are go for LOI, over. Roger, go for LOI. Apollo 11 is coming up on the moon fast now. They are just a few minutes away from LOI, or the lunar orbit insertion burn. 
The spacecraft is about to loop around the far side of the moon, where they will ignite the engine to slow them down and allow them to enter lunar orbit. Apollo 11, this is Houston. All your systems are looking good going around the corner. We'll see you on the other side, over. Radio signals can't penetrate the moon, so each time that Apollo moves behind the moon, they will be on their own. At 75 hours, 41 minutes, and 23 seconds, exactly as predicted, Earth loses radio contact with Apollo 11. But just because Houston can't hear the astronauts, it doesn't mean we can't. Yeah, the moon is there, boy, in all its splendor. Plaster appearance gray to me. Don't look at it. Here we come up. Okay. Clearly, Neil wants everyone's full attention. Don't worry, guys. There's going to be plenty of moon to see shortly. Standing by for TIG. TIG is time of ignition. The command service module's primary rocket, a more than 20,000-pound thrust engine, ignites. This is Apollo Control. It's 75 hours, 49 minutes. Apollo 11 should have started this long burn. Duration, six minutes, two seconds. There's a reason Armstrong needs his crew's complete attention. For every second of this 362-second burn, Apollo 11 is dropping more than 11 nautical miles toward the moon. If they are off by even 10 seconds, they will slam into the moon's surface. Winding off a little bit for all that's to be expected. Engine's steering like a champ. Chamber pressure sneaking up to 100. If something goes wrong, it will be nearly half an hour until anyone in mission control even knows there's a problem. 10 seconds. Luckily, there is no problem. Apollo 11's engine has slowed the vehicle to a sufficient degree that it's been captured by lunar gravity. It is now only 60 nautical miles above the surface. Michael makes a joke about MIT, whose Draper Computer Laboratory built the spacecraft's computers, and on whose computations they were relying to get them into orbit safely. Today, we take for granted that computers run so much of our lives, but the idea of trusting your life to a machine was still a foreign concept in 1969. Clearly, Michael and the others had some occasional doubts. They don't anymore. With the engines off, they finally get a chance to gawk at the moon. Well, I have to vote with the 10 crew. That thing is brown. Yeah. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Hello, moon. How's your old Back in mission control, the public affairs officer makes an important announcement. We're past the no-burn acquisition time now, and we have received no signal. If Apollo 11 had not slowed itself and settled into orbit, Houston would have expected to reacquire their signal right about now. The fact that they haven't indicates that the burn was successful. It's very quiet here in the control room. Most of the controllers seated at their consoles, a few standing up, but very quiet. There's one other reason Apollo 11 may not have reestablished contact. It could have crashed on the dark side of the moon. Everyone in mission control waits silently. The guys in the capsule don't realize the apprehension building on Earth. They are too spellbound by their view. Well, I look at that little crater. Hope none of those meteors come by right now. Get the mountains going around it. My gosh, they're monsters. We think of the moon as a flat thing. From our vantage point on Earth, we can't make out any definition. But there are mountains on the moon more than 21,000 feet tall. That's a 1,000 feet taller than Denali, the tallest mountain in North America. 
the largest known impact crater on the moon is roughly 1,600 miles wide and eight miles deep. To Apollo 11, soaring just 60 miles above this astonishing topography, the view is like nothing they have ever seen. Oh boy, you could spend uh, a lifetime just geologizing that one crater alone, you know that? Not how I'd like to spend my lifetime, but... Now there's a big mother over here too. Come on now, Buzz, only three of them big mother. Just some scientific name. A geologist up there is just so crazy. We talked before about what life was like for the astronauts' families while they were away. But what exactly were the astronauts up to that whole time? What were they doing that was so important that they missed months and even years of time with their loving families? It has more to do with Michael's geology comment than you might think. Practice makes perfect. It's one of those things that's drilled into every American schoolchild. But it works for more than just reading, writing, and arithmetic. It also works for space exploration. Everyone working on Apollo 11 from the crew in the spacecraft to the flight controllers in mission control, undertook a rigorous training regimen to prepare them for the first mission to the moon. Which makes you wonder, how do you train for something no one has ever done before? And what kind of toll does it take on the families left behind? Apollo 13's Jim Lovell. In any kind of an occupation that you're going to be involved in, it's imperative that you have good training before you do the actual uh, things. Training was the one thing that made everything successful. I mean, if we were sort of lackadaisical in training, I don't think we would have ever done it. Amy Shira-Title is a spacecraft historian, author, and YouTuber extraordinaire. Nothing was left up to chance. No one really knew it was going to happen for the first time people walked on the moon. So NASA's approach is basically take every question out of the equation and run through absolutely everything and make sure we know how everything's gonna work. Neil, Buzz, and Michael trained intensely for six months for their nine-day mission. It was, according to Michael, the busiest six months of their entire lives. From January to July of 1969, the crew of Apollo 11 logged more than 3,521 training hours, or roughly 42 hours a week per man. They also did an additional 20 hours a week studying. All astronauts receive intensive academic training to assure that they have achieved a common level of spaceflight knowledge. The least sexy, yet arguably the most important part of the astronauts' training, took place in flight simulators, which perfectly resembled the command and lunar modules, down to every last switch and blinking light. In the complex computer-operated electronic mechanism called the Command Module Simulator, the astronauts learn singly and as a team systems and characteristics of their three-man ship. In these simulators, the men practiced rendezvousing and docking with other spacecraft and, of course, landing on the moon. On the outside uh, was a large mosaic of the actual place we were going to land. And then hanging over that was a TV camera that was controlled by the controls in the lunar module and I could actually control the camera going down, looking for places to land, and, and the actual simulation of the speeds and things like that of the lunar module. It was actually a marvelous device. It was very accurate. Their instructors programmed system malfunctions, emergencies, and various disasters to see how quickly and proficiently the crew could react and how well they knew the spacecraft and its systems. Neil put in more than 10 weeks of eight-hour days in the LEM trainer. Buzz put in even more. Michael did half of his command module simulator training by himself. Since he was never going to see the inside of the LEM during the mission or walk on the moon, there was no need for him to learn any of that. 
In all, the men calculated that they spent around 2,000 hours or 80 days in those simulators. According to Michael, there was only one angry moment throughout the men's training. During one of the simulated lunar descents, Neil was ordered to abort the landing after the spacecraft began malfunctioning. Neil disagreed with the order, thinking he could still land safely. He was wrong. The LEM smashed into the lunar surface, breaking apart. That night, with several glasses of scotch in him, Buzz angrily ripped into Neil. It got so heated that Michael slipped away to let them have at it. He never did learn how they resolved things, but the next morning they were back to their normal selves as if nothing had ever happened. While we think of Apollo 11 as the moon landing mission, the truth is that Neil and Buzz spent less than three of their more than 195-hour-long mission gallivanting across the lunar surface. As such, training for their lunar EVA represented only 14% of their overall preparations. Simulators are used to train astronauts to work in the one-sixth gravity on the surface of the moon. They did some things where they supported astronauts on their sides from cables and had them run around a vertical track to see about mobility. They used the Vomit Comet, which is, you know, flies in parabolas to give you actual periods of reduced gravity, like on the moon, so they could figure out how to deploy instruments, how to walk. To become familiar with the sensations of zero gravity or weightlessness, the astronauts ride in aircraft flying precise trajectories. They also practiced in a precursor of what is known today as the neutral buoyancy simulator. Scuba training is given since another method of simulating weightlessness is by working underwater. In specially constructed tanks, the astronauts enter the water weighted to provide neutral buoyancy. The astronauts meticulously rehearsed the entire moonwalk. NASA created fake indoor moonscapes, complete with a full-size lunar module mock-up. Encased in their spacesuits, the men practiced exiting and entering the LEM and ran through every aspect of the mission, from the tools they would use, the experiments they would deploy, the rock samples they would collect, and even the flag they would plant. However, not all of their training took place indoors. Classroom work is supplemented with field trips. The astronauts collecting samples on the surface of the moon will have the equivalent study of a master's degree in geology. This is Harrison Schmidt. I'm a astronaut that flew on Apollo 17. Before Harrison Schmidt became an astronaut, and later, the only professional scientist to ever go to the moon, he was a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. At NASA, he pulled double duty, training future moonwalkers in what kind of rocks they should look for once they were there. We tried to find uh, Earth analogs for some of the things that we thought they might encounter at their particular site. While their families remained in Houston, the astronauts spent a lot of time traipsing around the world, from Iceland to Hawaii, Texas to Arizona. I tried to impart as much of the logic of field geology as possible, because that's basically what they would be trying to uh, do on the moon, is to uh, observe and sample and document their observations. So how did Neil do? I was already very impressed with Neil Armstrong. He was a great observer. And uh, so I expected him to do a very good job, and he did. It was outstanding job. He collected one of the finest suites of samples that has ever been collected, uh, including my mission on Apollo 17. Back in orbit around the moon, Apollo 11 has finally rounded the bend and is catching sight of the Earth. And if they can see the Earth, it means the Earth can see them. The LOI-1 burn just nominal. They'll get out and everything's looking good. It was like perfect. The astronauts will now get their first view of the area in which they will set down tomorrow, the southwestern corner of a lava plain dubbed the Sea of Tranquility. 
Apollo 11 was getting its first view of uh, the landing approach. Looks very much like the pictures, but uh, like the difference between watching a real football game and one on TV, uh, no substitute for actually being there. As you just heard, the Apollo 8 and 10 missions snapped hundreds of images from the chosen landing zone. This allowed scientists to determine the safest path of approach and the flattest area in which to land. Uh, Roger, we concur, and uh, we certainly wish we could see it firsthand also. We're over Mount Maryland at the present time at a ignition point. Mount Maryland, which sits at the southeast corner of the Sea of Tranquility, was named by astronaut Jim Lovell during Apollo 8 in honor of his wife. Its size and orientation make it an easily recognizable landmark for tomorrow's descent. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanika on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The astronauts were not the only ones who trained extensively for this mission. Unlike Neil Buzz and Michael, the flight controllers who worked in the cathedral may have been able to go home to their families every night. 
but their hours were every bit as demanding and their jobs every bit as stressful. They sacrificed a lot to ensure that the men in the spacecraft made it safely to the moon and back again. While four separate mission control teams rotated through the different shifts to cover the entire mission, we're going to focus on the white team, the one Gene Kranz led. Gene's team had been given the coveted lunar landing shift. Gene likes the people he's working with. He chose them personally. Mission Control's simulation supervisor, or SimSup, was Dick Coos, a rail-thin former army sergeant. From a back room full of computers sending realistic mission readouts to each of the consoles, Coos could simulate just about any conceivable scenario. Eight weeks before the launch of Apollo 11, Gene's white team was confident and self-assured. Coos put an end to that. Dick Coos must have looked at us and said, that team's too cocky. That team needs to get a few lessons. And he called his team up and let's put the screws to these guys. Seconds into their very first session, they started showing problems with the LEM's ascent engine. If the LEM put down on the lunar surface, it might never get back off again. Gene and his team aborted the landing, and Coos agreed with their decision. On one of the next simulations, so many things began going wrong that the white team began drowning in data. They couldn't sort through it fast enough. By the time they recognized that the LEM was descending too quickly, it was too late. The LEM was splattered across the craters. Second month of training, we had a particularly bad day where we couldn't seem to do anything right. We went through a bad, bad, bad day. We had crashed and we had crashed. And then to avoid crashing, we'd become unnecessarily conservative and we'd abort when we could have landed. And by the end of the day, we felt pretty bad. And this is the way it went, again and again. Coos was relentless. Gene and his men were simply not fast enough to keep up with all the problems Coos was sending their way. Gene felt unsure of his every call, second-guessing his every instinct. Worse, his indecisiveness was wearing off on his team. It was only a couple weeks, but it seemed a, a lifetime where we could not do anything right. It wasn't long before the powers that be asked Gene if they needed to push Apollo 11's launch date. The white team didn't appear ready. Gene insisted they would be. And training was now, and Apollo was about as real. I mean, you would get the sweaty palms. When the pressure was on in a training episode, it no longer was training, it was real. And the same emotions, the same feelings, the same energies, the same adrenaline would flow. And Coos was uh, causing all this to happen, but he decided my team wasn't ready, so he kept beating us up and beating us up and beating us up. The white team hunkered down. They practically lived at their consoles. Like the astronauts they were training so hard to keep safe, they spent more time at work than with their families. But the tide was finally beginning to turn. They were making real progress, responding faster now, more in control. The simulations weren't getting any easier, but they were getting better. They had successfully landed the LEM a half dozen times now, and finally, they felt ready. On July 5th, just a week and a half before the launch of Apollo 11, Gene and his white team sat down for their final simulation. The final training runs invariably are supposed to be confidence builders. It's to the point now, this is the last time you're going to have an opportunity. Generally, things are going to go right during the course of the mission, so let's stay within the box. Let's build the confidence of this team, etc. Coos didn't see it that way. The test started with a lunar module beginning its descent. And midway through the descent training, we saw a series of computer program alarms. 
And we had never seen these before in training. We had never studied these before in training. Down in front at the guidance position was 26-year-old Steve Bales. According to Gene, Steve was the quintessential nerd with thick glasses. Unlike most people, Gene actually meant that as a compliment. I was on the guidance console and a program alarm came up. And I'd never seen it before. My backroom expert, Jared Garment, had never seen it before. The alarm read 1201. Since Neil and Buzz were already in Florida, in quarantine, astronauts Dave Scott and Jim Irwin were filling in for them in the simulated lab. Steve heard them demanding an explanation for the alarm over the radio, but he didn't have one to give them. Steve began rushing through the pages of a software handbook on his desk, looking for an answer. He knew that at any moment, Gene was going to be breathing down his neck. His mind flashed back to that lem splattered on the moon. Every second counts. Finally, he found it. 1201, executive overflow. The computer was overloaded with tasks and threatening to crash. But why? Everything seemed to be working just fine. Suddenly, another series of alarms rang out. It was the same alarm again. What the hell was going on? Steve couldn't wait any longer. He had to make a decision. He decided to err on the side of caution. My guidance officer, Steve Bales, decided we had to abort. I was really seething. I mean, just really frustrated at Simpson. But there's no, I mean, he's the boss during training. He's going to call the shots. And I was really ready to kill Coos at this time. I said, damn that. We thought we had done everything right. And Coos comes into us and he says, no, he says, you didn't do everything right. You should not have aborted for those computer program alarms. What you should have done is ignored those alarms. More bewildered than ever, Gene cornered Steve Bales. So after the debriefing, Gene went up and said, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, I want you to go find out every one of these alarms. I don't care what they are. And I want you to at least make a cheat sheet so that you'll know what to do if they come up. I said, Gene, you've got to be kidding me. I got 10 other things to do. We got one meet to go to the takeoff of the Saturn. I've got this to do, and you assign this and this and this. He said, I don't care. I want you to get done. Well, I got a call about uh, 10 o'clock that evening that said uh, the training people were right. We had made the wrong decision. Sure, the computer was overloaded, but it wouldn't have affected safety of flight or any of the critical systems. They could have landed on the moon. If Gene and his people had been better prepared, they would have known that. Why did I tell you this story? When Apollo 11 begins its lunar descent for real, the reason will become glaringly obvious. Because while everyone in mission control may have gone home angry on July 5th, Dick Coos's punishing training will literally save the mission on July 20th. Standing by for acquisition. Television is uh, now on. Apollo 11 has come out from behind the moon. The schedule has our trio starting a TV transmission as soon as they catch sight of Earth. It's time to describe the new view out their windows. Sea of fertility doesn't look very fertile to me. I don't know who named it. Well, it may have been named by the cartographer to the King of Spain and made one of the, one of the early reasonably accurate maps of the moon. Class clown Michael making a joke and Brainiac Neil showing off. And uh, we're getting a good view of the track leading into the landing site now. Okay, this is uh, very close to ignition point for power defense. Neil is walking the audience through tomorrow's descent, checking it against the lunar roadmap. Roger, I imagine you get a uh, you get a real good uh, look at that tomorrow afternoon. As Apollo 11 passes out of communication range again, 
the astronauts realize that the exterior skin of the spacecraft is covered in a discolored sheen they can't quite identify. Michael suddenly realizes exactly what they're looking at. Well, lamb is contaminated. It's got urine particles all over it. No more urine dumps on the way to the moon. Michael decides to run another of his experiments. Hey, well, I'm most things rolling over. I'm going to take a peek. Having finished peeing into a condom-like hose, Michael discards the waste liquid through a urine dump nozzle on the outside of the spacecraft, inspiring the men to discuss the unique properties of fluid dynamics in space. Oh my God, that one's got a little, little curve on it. Yeah, it had a little bubble in it that uh, came to the surface and went kapoom. Uh, there's atmospheric drag up here. I think what's really happening is uh, we're rolling. But now it's time for a quick dinner and then bed. We're setting our maneuver to sleep attitude. Uh, roll 82, pitch 229, This is Apollo Control Houston at 83 hours, uh, 43 minutes, and now to the flight Apollo 11. We expect uh, the next time we acquire Apollo 11, uh, Neil Armstrong, Mike Collins, uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, uh, will have begun their rest period. That's the last meal we eat uh, for the center. Huh? Well, we... Okay, well, we get the lights out there. Amazing how quickly you adapt. Well, that doesn't seem weird at all to me. Look out there and see the moon going by. You know? The well on today went pretty well. Tomorrow, the next day, like today, it was good as day. How the men think they're going to be able to get any sleep tonight is beyond me. And they're not the only ones. Back on Earth, as the astronauts' families and Gene Kranz and his white team prepare for bed, everyone is surely asking the same question Are we ready? Did our training cover everything we're bound to encounter? Did we train for everything we could? Did we forget something crucial? And the fact is, no one can answer that. Tomorrow, Neil, Buzz, and Michael will do something no one in all of human history has ever done before. If they're successful, they'll go down in history. Their names will be known the world over throughout all time. Or they'll fail and die hundreds of thousands of miles from everyone they love. Day four is over. Tomorrow is day five, July 20th, the day human beings first attempt to step foot on another world. And as we'll hear on our next episode, it very nearly didn't happen. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios. Executive producers, Ash Sorohia and Scott Bernstein, in association with High Five Content and executive producer, Andrew Jacobs. Amazing research and production assistance by associate producers Brianne Shosaw and Natalie Robamed. Our incredible editor is Bill Lance. Original music by Henry Benoit. Special thanks to Andy Aldrin, Lily Coppell, the author of The Astronaut Wives Club, historian Amy Shearer Title, the author of the upcoming Fighting for Space, Apollo 13's Jim Lovell, Apollo 17's Harrison Schmidt, Mission Control's Steve Bales. Special thanks to everyone at NASA who made this podcast possible, especially the incredible technological wizardry of consulting producer Ben Feist, who's responsible for organizing and cleaning the 11,000 hours of mission audio you're hearing selections from in this podcast. Special thanks also to consultant Gina Delvac. Licensing rights and clearances by Deborah Correa. This is a brand new podcast, and we're so excited to be sharing it with you. Help us spread it far and wide. Tell your friends, leave ratings and reviews, and chat about it on social media. Our hashtag is 9DIJ. We would love to hear what you think. 
New episodes come out each week, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brandon Phipps. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.